Book Two, The Church of Good Society, Part Four of The Prophets of Religion by Upton Sinclair. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Dead Cats. For more than a hundred years, the Anglican clergy have been fighting with every resource at their command the liberal and enlightened men of England who wish to educate the masses of the people. In 1807, the first measure for a national school system was denounced by the Archbishop of Canterbury as derogatory to the authority of the church. As a countermeasure, his supporters established the National Society for Promoting the Education of the Poor in the doctrines of the established church, and the founder of the organization, a clergyman, advocated a barn as a good structure for a school, and insisted that the children of the workers should not be taught beyond their station. In 1840 a committee of the Privy Council on Education was appointed, but bowed to the will of the archbishops setting forth the decree of their lordships that the first purpose of all instruction must be the regulation of the thoughts and habits of the children by the doctrine and precepts of revealed religion. In 1850 a bill for secular education was denounced as presenting to the country a choice between heaven or hell, God or the devil. In 1870, Forster, author of the still unpassed bill, wrote that while the parsons were disputing, the children of the poor were growing into savages. As with education, so with social reform. During the struggle to abolish slavery in the British colonies, some enthusiasts endeavored to establish the doctrine that Christian baptism conferred emancipation upon negroes who accepted it, whereupon the Bishop of London laid down the formula of exploitation. Christianity and the embracing of the gospel do not make the least alteration of civil property. Gladstone, who was a Democrat when he was not religious, spoke of the cultured classes of England. In almost every one, if not every one, of the greatest political controversies of the last fifty years, whether they affected the franchise, whether they affected commerce, whether they affected religion, whether they affected the bad and abominable institution of slavery, or what subject they touched, these leisured classes, these educated classes, these titled classes have been in the wrong. The great commoner did not add these religious classes, for he belonged to the religious classes himself, but a study of the record will supply the gap. The church opposed all the reform measures which Gladstone himself put through. It opposed the reform bill of 1832. It opposed all the social reforms of Lord Salisbury. This noble-hearted Englishman complained that at first only a single minister of religion supported him, and to the end only a few. 
He expressed himself as distressed and puzzled. To find support from infidels and non-professors, opposition or coldness from religionists or declaimers. And to our own day it has been the same. In 1894 the House of Bishops voted solidly against the employer's liability law. The House of Bishops opposed home rule and beat it. The House of Bishops opposed woman's suffrage and voted against it to the end. Concerning this establishment, Lord Salisbury, himself the most devout of Englishmen, used the vivid phrase, this vast aquarium full of cold-blooded life. He told the bishops that he would give up preaching to them about ecclesiastical reform, because he knew that they would never begin. Another member of the British aristocracy, the Honorable George Russell, has written of their record and adventures. They were defenders of absolutism, slavery, and the bloody penal code. They were the resolute opponents of every political or social reform, and they had their reward from the nation outside Parliament. The Bishop of Bristol had his palace sacked and burnt. The Bishop of London could not keep an engagement to preach, lest the congregation should stone him. The Bishop of Lichfield barely escaped with his life after preaching at St. Bride's Fleet Street. Archbishop Howley, entering Canterbury for his primary visitation, was insulted, spat upon, and only brought by a circuitous route to the deanery, amid the execrations of the mob. On the 5th of November the bishops of Exeter and Winchester were burnt in effigy close to their own palace gates. Archbishop Howley's chaplain complained that a dead cat had been thrown at him, when the archbishop, a man of apostolic meekness, replied, you should be thankful that it was not a live one. The people had reason for this conduct, as you will always find they have, if you take the trouble to inquire. Let me quote another member of the English ruling classes, Mr. Conrad Noel, who gives an instance of the procedure of church and state about this period. In 1832, six agricultural laborers in South Dorsetshire, led by one of their class, George Lovelace, in receipt of nine shillings a week each, demanded the ten-shilling rate of wages usual in the neighborhood. The result was a reduction to eight shillings. An appeal was made to the chairman of the local bench, who decided that they must work for whatever their masters chose to pay them. The parson, who had at first promised his help, now turned against them, and the masters promptly reduced the wage to seven shillings, with a threat of further reduction. Lovelace then formed an agricultural union, for which all seven were arrested, treated as convicts, and committed to the assizes. The prison chaplain tried to bully them into submission. The judge determined to convict them, and directed that they should be tried for mutiny under an act of George the Third, 
specially passed to deal with the naval mutiny at the Nore. The grand jury were landowners, and the petty jury were farmers. Both judge and jury were churchmen of the prevailing type. The judge summed up as follows. Not for anything that you have done, or that I can prove that you intend to do, but for an example to others, I consider it my duty to pass the sentence of seven years' penal transportation across His Majesty's high seas upon each and every one of you. Suffer Little Children The founder of Christianity was a man who specialized in children. He was not afraid of having his discourses disturbed by them. He did not consider them superfluous. Of such is the kingdom of heaven, he said, and his church is the inheritor of this tradition. Feed my lambs. There were children in Great Britain in the early part of the nineteenth century, and we may see what was done with them by turning to Gibbon's Industrial History of England. Sometimes regular traffickers would take the place of the manufacturer and transfer a number of children to a factory district, and there keep them, generally in some dark cellar, till they could hand them over to a mill owner in want of hands, who would come and examine their height, strength, and bodily capacities, exactly as did the slave owners in the American markets. After that the children were simply at the mercy of their owners, nominally as apprentices, but in reality as mere slaves, who got no wages, and whom it was not worth while even to feed and clothe properly, because they were so cheap and their places could be so easily supplied. It was often arranged by the parish authorities, in order to get rid of imbeciles, that one idiot should be taken by the mill owner with every twenty sane children. The fate of these unhappy idiots was even worse than that of the others. The secret of their final end has never been disclosed, but we can form some idea of their awful sufferings from the hardships of the other victims to capitalist greed and cruelty. The hours of their labor were only limited by exhaustion, after many modes of torture had been unavailingly applied to force continued work. Children were often worked sixteen hours a day, by day and by night. In the year 1819, an act of Parliament was proposed limiting the labor of children nine years of age to fourteen hours a day. This would seem to have been a reasonable provision, likely to have won the approval of Christ, yet the bill was violently opposed by Christian employers backed by Christian clergymen. It was interfering with freedom of contract, and therefore with the will of providence. It was anathema to an established church, whose function was in 1819, as it is in 1918, and was in 1918 B.C., to teach the divine origin and sanction of the prevailing economic order. Anu and Baal called me. 
Hammurabi, the exalted prince, worshipper of the gods. So begins the oldest legal code which has come down to us, from 2250 B.C. And the coronation service of the English church is made whole out of the same thesis. The duty of submission, not merely to divinely chosen king, but to divinely chosen landlord and divinely chosen manufacturer, is implicit in the church's every ceremony, and explicit in many of its creeds. In the litany, the people petition for increase of grace to hear meekly thy word. And here is this word, as little children are made to learn it by heart. If there exists in the world a more perfect summary of slave ethics, I do not know where to find it. My duty towards my neighbor is to honor and obey the king and all that are put in authority under him, to submit myself to all my governors, teachers, spiritual pastors, and masters, to order myself lowly and reverently to all my betters, not to covet nor desire other men's goods, but to learn and labor truly to get mine own living, and to do my duty in that state of life unto which it shall please God to call me. A hundred years ago one of the most popular of British writers was Hannah Moore. She and her sister Martha went to live in the coal country to teach this catechism to the children of the starving miners. The Mendip Annals is the title of a book in which they tell of their ten years' labors in a village popularly known as Little Hell. In this place two hundred people were crowded into nineteen houses. There is not one creature in it that can give a cup of broth if it would save a life. In one winter eighteen perished of a putrid fever, and the clergyman could not raise a sixpence to save a life. And what did the pious sisters make of all this? From cover to cover you find in the Mendip Annals no single word of social protest, not even of social suspicion. That wages of a shilling a day might have anything to do with moral degeneration was a proposition beyond the mental powers of England's most popular woman writer. She was perfectly content that a woman should be sentenced to death for stealing butter from a dealer who had asked what the woman thought too high a price. When there came a famine, and the children of these mine-slaves were dying like flies, Hannah Moore bade them be happy, because God had sent them her pious self. In suffering by the scarcity, you have but shared in the common lot, with the pleasure of knowing the advantage you have had over many villages, in your having suffered no scarcity of religious instruction. And in another place she explained that the famine was caused by God to teach the poor to be grateful to the rich. 
Let me remind you that probably that very scarcity has been permitted by an all-wise and gracious providence to unite all ranks of people together, to show the poor how immediately they are dependent upon the rich, and to show both rich and poor that they are all dependent upon himself. It has also enabled you to see more clearly the advantages you derive from the government and constitution of this country, to observe the benefits flowing from the distinction of rank and fortune which has enabled the high to so liberally assist the low. It appears that the villagers were entirely convinced by this pious reasoning, for they assembled one Saturday night and burned an effigy of Tom Paine. This proceeding led to a tragic consequence, for one of the common people, known as Robert, was overtaken by liquor, and was unable to appear at Sunday school next day. This fall from grace occasioned intense remorse in Robert. It preyed dreadfully upon his mind for many months, records Martha Moore, and despair seemed at length to take possession of him. Hannah had some conversation with him, and read him some suitable passages from The Rise and Progress. At length the Almighty was pleased to shine into his heart and give him comfort. Nor should you imagine that this saintly stupidity was in any way unique in the Anglican establishment. We read in the letters of Shelley how his father tormented him with Archdeacon Paley's evidences as a cure for atheism. This eminent churchman wrote a book, which he himself ranked first among his writings, called Reasons for Contentment, Addressed to the Laboring Classes of the British Public. In this book he not merely proved that religion smooths all inequalities because it unfolds a prospect which makes all earthly distinctions nothing. He went so far as to prove that, quite apart from religion, the British exploiters were less fortunate than those to whom they paid a shilling a day. Some of the conditions which poverty, if the condition of the laboring part of mankind must be so called, imposes, are not hardships, but pleasures. Frugality itself is a pleasure. It is an exercise of attention and contrivance, which, whenever it is successful, produces satisfaction. This is lost among abundance. And there was William Wilberforce, as sincere a philanthropist as Anglicanism ever produced, an ardent supporter of Bible societies and foreign missions, a champion of the anti-slavery movement, and also of the ruthless combination laws, which denied to British wage slaves all chance of bettering their lot. Wilberforce published a practical view of the system of Christianity, in which he told unblushingly what the Anglican establishment is for. In a chapter which he described as the basis of all politics, he explained that the purpose of religion is to remind the poor 
that their more lowly path has been allotted to them by the hand of God, that it is their part faithfully to discharge its duties, and contentedly to bear its inconveniences, that the objects about which worldly men conflict so eagerly are not worth the contest, that the peace of mind, which religion offers indiscriminately to all ranks, affords more true satisfaction than all the expensive pleasures which are beyond the poor man's reach, that in this view the poor have the advantage, that if their superiors enjoy more abundant comforts, they are also exposed to many temptations from which the inferior classes are happily exempted, that, having food and raiment, they should be therewith content, since their situation in life, with all its evils, is better than they have deserved at the hand of God, and finally, that all human distinctions will soon be done away, and the true followers of Christ will all, as children of the same Father, be alike admitted to the possession of the same heavenly inheritance. Such are the blessed effects of Christianity on the temporal well-being of political communities. THE COURT CIRCULAR The Anglican system of submission has been transplanted intact to the soil of America. When King George III lost the sovereignty of the colonies, the bishops of his divinely inspired church lost the control of the clergy across the seas. But this revolution was purely one of church politics. In doctrine and ritual the Protestant Episcopal Church of America remained in every way Anglican. The little children of our free republic are taught the same slave catechism, to order myself lowly and reverently to all my betters. The only difference is that instead of being told to honor and obey the king, they are told to honor and obey the civil authority. It is the Church of Good Society in England, and it is the same in Boston, New York, Philadelphia, Baltimore, Washington, Charleston. Just as our ruling classes have provided themselves with imitation English schools, and imitation English manners, and imitation English clothes, so in their heaven they have provided an imitation English monarch. I wonder how many Americans realize the treason to democracy they are committing when they allow their children to be taught a symbolism and liturgy based upon absolutist ideas. I take up the hymn book, not the English, but the sturdy, independent, democratic American hymn book. I have not opened it for twenty years, yet the greater part of its contents is as familiar to me as the syllables of my own name. I read, Holy, 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 all the saints adore thee, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, cherubim and seraphim bowing down before thee, which wert and art and evermore shall be.
one might quote a hundred other hymns made thus out of royal imagery. I turn at random to the part-headed general, and find that there is hardly one hymn in which there is not king, throne, or some image of homage and flattery. The first hymn begins, Ancient of days, who sittest throned in glory, to thee all knees are bent, all voices pray. And the second, Christ, whose glory fills the skies. And the third, Lord of all being, throned afar, thy glory flames from sun and star. There is a court in heaven above, to which all good Britons look up, and about which they read with exactly the same thrills as they read the court circular. The two courts have the same ethical code and the same manners. Their sovereigns are jealous, greedy of attention, self-conscious, and profoundly serious, punctilious, and precise. Their existence consisting of an endless round of ceremonies, and they being incapable of boredom. No member of the royal family can escape this regime even if he wishes, and no more can any member of the holy family, not even the meek and lowly Jesus, who chose a carpenter's wife for his mother, and showed all his earthly days a preference for low society. This unconventional son lived obscurely. He never carried weapons. He could not bear to have so much as a human ear cut off in his presence. But see how he figures in the court circular. The Son of God goes forth to war, a kingly crown to gain. His blood-red banner streams afar. Who follows in his train? This carpenter's son was one of the most unpretentious men on earth, utterly simple and honest. He would not even let anyone praise him. When someone called him, Good master, he answered quickly, Why callest thou me good? There is none good save one, that is, God. But this simplicity has been taken with deprecation by his church, which persists in heaping compliments upon him in conventional courtly style. The company of angels are praising thee on high, and mortal men and all things created make reply, all glory, laud, and honor to thee, Redeemer, King. The impression a modern man gets from all this is the unutterable boredom that heaven must be. Can one imagine a more painful occupation than that of the saints, casting down their golden crowns around the glassy sea, unless it be that of the triumvirate itself, compelled to sit through eternity watching these saints and listening to their mawkish and superfluous compliments, but one can understand that such things are necessary in a monarchy. They are necessary if you are going to have good society and a good society church. For good society is precisely the same thing as heaven, that is, a place to which only a few can get admission, and those few are bored. They spend their time going through costly formalities, 
not because they enjoy it, but because of its effect upon the populace, which reads about them and sees their pictures in the papers, and now and then is allowed to catch a glimpse of their physical presences, as at the horse show, or the opera, or the coaching parade. End of Book Two, Part Four